So today we're going to talk about God's Word. Where do we get all these things? Where do these prophecies, all that stuff come from? Last week we started our series uh, with uh, talking about what is the Bible. Made a lot of big claims, talk about it being God's Word, talking about being an authority for our lives. Today we're going to talk about how do we know it's God's Word. What, it, what gives us the right to make those amazing claims? And so um, if you have your Bibles, you want to turn in them to 2 Timothy, which was where we're going to be today. And 2 Timothy is kind of near the back, and it's right after 1 Timothy, which is handy. And uh, we're going to be in chapter 3 is where we are all this series, and so you want to get that handy for you. And uh, while you're turning to that, of course, we always like to do our memory verses. And so as we do our memory verse, this was from last week, and we're going to be doing the memory verse a little different than we normally do. We're going to do them in series so you can see the whole kind of the passage of this, where it, where it builds to. So last week, we talked about in 2 Timothy 3.14, it says, but you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught, that you know they are true, for you know you can trust them. Ah, but for those who have that incredible testimony where they were raised in the scripture, you have parents, and you're raising your kids, or grandparents, and you have kids, and you're teaching them the word, what a blessing that is. Or think about this, that the scriptures give us something, it gives us wisdom. Wisdom to do what? To receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. It's all about the Lord. So make sure you take this, think about how it applies to your life, put it in your pocket, and, and we'll start there. All right, so we'll talk about today. Where did the Bible come from? Because I made some claims. I said that this is God's word. I said that it's authoritative. But where did it come from? Right? Because there's a lot of debate over this. Should we trust the Bible? And so we're going to talk about that today. And, uh, and so as we go into uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, starting in uh, verse 14, which you, this will sound familiar hopefully, it says, But you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. Now it says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to repair us and equip his people to do every good work. Did you notice in there that even to uh, last week's memory verse, it says that we can trust those who brought this to us. All the great things that flow after that, the things that the Bible can do for us, the fact that we have confidence that is God's word, all starts when it says, you must remain faithful to the things you've been taught because you know you can trust those who taught you. I mean, even from the word of God says we need to look at its origin, right? To say, is this a trustworthy document? And then we can have the confidence. So that's what we'll be talking about. And so the first thing we're going to see is the Bible came from people. It didn't just arrive one day like in a big package from Amazon from heaven, right? It's like, oh. You open it up, oh, hey, right? Other than the Ten Commandments, we really don't have anywhere where God actually just chiseled his word and gave it to us. And so the the scriptures came from people. It's like this. um, This was a a present from my mom from uh, 1994 for my birthday, and that was just a couple years after I accepted Jesus. And she gave me this this awesome, this painting. And it's a picture. She got it because it looks like me, and that looked like my car, the one that I drove through the telephone pole and killed but she liked it because it has this picture of Jesus, um, and you can tell because he's, he's got the wounds in his hands, and he shows a map of life. And she said, you know, as, you, as a young man, she says, you know, God's going to help give you guidance, so we need to follow him and all this. But I would ask you this morning, uh, where did this painting come from? Where did it originate from? Well, for me, it originated from my mom, but where, my mom didn't make it. Where did it come from? People. People. It, it came from an artist, didn't it? Yeah, well, it came from ours. Well, what about 
uh, what was the paintbrush's job? Right? Didn't the artist choose just the right color, just the right paintbrush to create exactly the picture that was what they wanted to show? Right? The, you would say maybe the artist inspired those brushes, put behind them exactly the strokes and the colors and the shades, and chose just the right tool at just the right time to create just the right picture. And my mom went into an art gallery and chose just the right picture of all the things that were out there to show me the message that she wanted to, to gain to me, right? This, this message of love. So the Bible, it came from people, but it wasn't just by people. You see, we talked about last week how the Bible, yeah, it came from over 40 different authors, over 1,500 years, three different continents, three different languages, from kings to, to, to slaves to all kinds of things. It came through different people. God chose just the right people at just the right times in their lives. He, he allowed to shape them. And you talk about the brilliance of God. He didn't just say, oh, I'm going to choose John right now to write scripture, and then I'm going to inspire him. No. God shaped John, prepared him. I mean, in his amazing sovereignty, God made John the absolute perfect instrument to, to write the Gospels of John and the first, second, third John. Isn't that amazing? I mean, talk about the brilliance of God. He writes through people, but he shapes everything to create a document so perfect that his message could not be, uh, could not be more perfect. Just because it, it came through people doesn't mean that it's flawed, right? That's an amazing thing. And it shows us the, the power of God. So this is a document that is, that is from humans, but is also truly, really from God. And it's through different people. And so when we understand, when we read the Bible, we have to read and understand the people that God chose. Why did he choose these prophets? Why would he have chosen this person? Why, is, why would Peter be the perfect person to write the epistles from Peter? Uh, who is this guy? What was he talking about? Why would he choose that context for Peter to write? Right? We have to understand, and so we see that the Bible is written from God through people. But next thing we see is that the Bible is also came from history. It didn't just show up one day. And, and a lot of people say, well, how do we know we can trust that the word that we have today, the Bible we have today, is actually the Bible that was originally written? Wasn't it just copies, and these are just copies of copies, and so it's like telephone, and so all these things about Jesus resurrecting from the dead and all these miracles, they all just were made up later. Is that, is, is that where it came from? Well, unfortunately, these critics uh, haven't done their, their study into really how the Bible was transmitted. And we see the Bible was accurate in transmission. And you look at the culture of how it was transmitted. Now, we talked about last week how the Bible has two major sections, Old Covenant, New Covenant, right? Old Testament, New Testament. And the Old Testament, as Jan was talking about today, the Jewish people take the scriptures, the Holy Scriptures, very seriously. And the way at which they would transmit this was not just throw it in a copy machine or just write down what you think. There were layers upon layers of protections to make sure that the word was, was transmitted accurately. Part of that was, on a particular page, they would have a certain number of letters, and it would be the same in every, every one of their scriptures. And so once the scribe copied the letters, they would count the letters across, count the letters down, make sure that just numerically they had the right numbers. Of course, they would proof text it as well, or proof it to make sure that there was, everything was right. Every single page was perfect, but beyond that, the people of Israel also memorized scripture because they didn't have Bibles on their phones, right? So they had to 
they had to carry it somehow with them. And the Bibles were very expensive. The scriptures were very, they're big. And so God said, memorize these things. So they would train them. Fathers would train their sons to memorize the word. And so when it was read in the synagogue, they would all already know what it was said. And if something was wrong in the text, the whole community would be able to say that was wrong. And they could correct it. It's an amazing thing. And I will tell you, I have a 10-year-old son. When you train your son, this is what is right, and he sees something is different, 10-year-olds are awesome at pointing out, hey, that's not right. <laughs> I think God was brilliant in how he had the whole thing set up. Not only was it, was, it, was it protected by the scribes, but it was also protected by the community, which is why when we find a scripture that's in Africa that came 500 years after Christ, and we find a scripture that is near the Middle East, and it was written 700 years before Jesus, they're exactly the same. And not only that, there's lots of copies. And so they can check to see if there ever was a variant. We'll know exactly where it began, where it came, so we know what was originally written. Now, the New Testament was actually even better. Uh, the New Testament, uh, it, had the, it had all these, uh, uh, the scribes would write things down, of course, but it was written in Greek, and then it was translated, so we have lots of different translations and all that kind of stuff that happens from it. And the Christians copied, because they were originally mostly Jewish, right? The church came from that heritage, had a lot of those same types of things. But they were different letters. And for a while, as the church was in the underground and all that kind of stuff, there were these letters and people knew that they were scripture. And so they prized them and they would copy them and all this kind of stuff. But it wasn't until Constantine came to power and made it so that Christians didn't have to, you know, be terrified of their, for their lives to actually have all of the scripture, that actually the whole New Testament was able to be copied and brought to all the churches. And there was this, there was this, uh, um, this council that he brought together, and it was all the church leaders. And they got together and they said, do we agree on what scripture is? And all but two guys agreed on, on what scripture was. There was a couple of, of there was some d- discussion about a couple books. Uh, Hebrew, how about James? What, I said, should that be in there? And they discussed it and they said, yes, absolutely. And there were two holdouts. And then based on those two holdouts, of course, then... Um, we, we have big movies and stuff made about how, you know, this was all just the church just forced what Scripture was upon the people. But no, the whole church already recognized what the Word of God was. And it, was when, and it wasn't just like a room of like 12 guys and there was two holdouts. There was 320-some guys and there were two guys that said, well, we want to add additional things. And then, of course, then there are people who say, well, what about these, these Gnostic Gospels? How about the Gospel of Thomas? You ever read about that? You go, you're checking out your groceries and you see Time Magazine says, you know, the Bible was written by frauds because, you know, you have uh, Tom, the Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Thomas, these Gnostic Gospels were written by people hundreds of years after the Gospels were written. The church never accepted them. In fact, the Gospel of John even speaks against Gnosticism. There's no reason that they would ever be accepted. That's why the church never used them, never have been part of it. The, the canon of scripture but the ones that we do have they had so many copies the bible because the church was fragmented at first they would copy these scriptures and they would copy them very carefully and they would send them to the other churches in the underground and what happened is is we had lots and lots of copies and we could tell by the very vast the, what the people had to say we can tell from all these copies what was originally in there because if you have 150 different things saying one thing and then four copies say something different guess which one's probably legit Right? But not only that, but we also can see where the copies were. Right? So if you have a bunch of copies that were made right in Jerusalem, right where the originals were at, those are probably going to be more authentic than those that were made way, way down in Africa right? or, or way up into Europe. 
right? Because those would be ex- further from the source. Or how about those that were made um, earlier on? We have so many copies that you'll see that if there was a change that was made, typically the change happens later in history than earlier, right? You usually have the original, so if things happen, like we find a variant reading that we only find starting up in like five, six hundred, seven hundred years after the original was written, we probably think, well, that was probably added, right? What happens is, is all of those things help us know exactly what's in Scripture. In fact, because of all those copies of copies and all the, the vast amount that we have, uh, we have what's called a, a, a textually pure uh, text. We know what the original was written 99.94% of the time. And the amazing thing is, is that in those, that point zero four, it's not words, it's letters, and it has nothing to do with doctrine. No major doctrine of scripture is in anywhere uh, contested. It's more like, should it say a uh, this or the this? I think it's amazing stuff. So we know what was, what was originally written. Uh, and not only that, it was, it was accurate in, in authenticity. We know who wrote the scriptures, which is an amazing thing. That we know that what we have today is not just what was originally written. We would say, well, people can write all kinds of things. But we know who wrote it. That was actually one of the qualifications of scripture. It had to be written by a prophet or, or an apostle or somebody directly related to it was writing under them. So you have, uh, so, you know, I'm a great guy. But if I live back in the first century, I couldn't write scripture because I'm not an apostle, right? Now, maybe if I was, if I was John's, you know, and John couldn't, you know, write or something, he said, Aaron, I want, you know, God's choosing to write this through you, and, I, and he'll look over and make sure what I'm writing is correct. Then I would be able to. That's how we got the gospel of Mark, because Peter was right there making sure everything was absolutely correct. But it doesn't come from anybody. We know that from church history, we know from because we have our documents go so far back, but who wrote these words? We know who wrote them and we know what they wrote. These are God's message from these people to us. And so, um, let's do, I like graphs. Do you like graphs? Yeah, so when I saw this, I thought this was pretty fascinating and it spoke to me because when I was studying the word, before I became a Christian, I wa- I'd studied lots of different religions and I wanted to make sure that I believed what was true. And this is something that's really fascinating. And actually, these numbers have changed because when I studied it, there was only about, uh, well, we'll get to that. There was a far fewer copies of things. But, um, but let's go to um, how many manuscript copies on one side and there's a time gap between what the original we know it was written and the earliest copy that we have because the Bible is written on, you know, biodegradable things, right? And so how far is the gap between the original that we have? And so if we look at some other ancient writings, here's the writings from Plato, okay? Uh, what we have here from Plato, there was seven amazing manuscript copies of, of uh, one of his uh, uh, awesome works. And unfortunately, I had the wrong slide on there, but uh, he had seven manuscript copies uh, and... Uh, of uh, his stuff, and we have a time gap between those copies, the seventh, the oldest of the seven copies between that oldest copy and when he wrote it is a gap of 1,200 years. Now, when you're reading uh, Plato's Tetralogies, you're not thinking, uh, no one questions, are these authentic? Did Plato write this? Is this what Plato wrote, right? Nobody would question that. In fact, I studied them in college, and they say these are going to be philosophy, this is exactly what he wrote. Why? Because those seven copies are pretty close to each other, Right? And they go back pretty far. In 1,200 years in the course of human history, that's not very far. So we would say with a great deal of confidence that we can read his writings and trust them. Well, if we go into in Pliny the Elders, uh, which um, his writings, 
Um, we have seven manuscript copies of his histories, which is amazing stuff. Seven, the same, but it's only a 750-year gap between the oldest copy and when it was originally written. So we look at his stuff, and we're like, man, this, he's way better than when we read Plato. We, we have absolute certainty when we read Pliny, the elder stuff, exactly what he wrote which is great. But that's really nothing compared to, to when we get to the Iliad. You ever read the Iliad in high school? When you were reading the Iliad in high school, did anybody ever say, we're not absolutely positive Homer wrote this, right? We're, we're, maybe. And what we're reading really should be criticized because, you know, no, we have 642 copies that date back within 500 years of when they were originally written. I mean, it's so well attested. Everybody's like, yes. What, what, uh, what uh, the Iliad? We know this is what, what, what Homer wrote. Well, look at this. This is something that's amazing. This is just the New Testament. We have now almost 29,000 manuscript copies. Fragments, which go back to about 50 years before. If you want a whole New Testament, it would send 400 years of the original. But a time gap of 50, that's less than one life. That those are, that's actual gospels. That's, that's entire books we have within 50 years. In fact, we have over, well, almost 600 manuscript copies that are dated within the first 500 years of when the New Testament was originally written. Now what we have, I mean, you can see the credibility. We look at that and we say just the vast amount. If we would question, if we should even begin to shadow a, a, a hint of doubt as to whether we can trust what the Bible says, we would have to completely throw out the Iliad, not to mention all the other works of antiquity. I mean, it's so well attested. I think God gave us this for a reason because we are trusting our eternity on it. And so we need to know that we have for certain exactly what we have is legitimate. It came from history, and God delivered the scriptures through history to us, and he did it in such a way that we knew exactly what was written is exactly what we have. It's amazing. Now, the scripture is uh, not just from history, and it's not just from people. Ultimately, it's from God. How do we know that? That's a big claim. I mean, we could say we have a lot of old books. I mean, Pliny Elder, he wrote stuff. He's not God. We don't look at that as Scripture as authority for our life. Just because it's old doesn't mean it's like somehow, you know, should, should rule our lives that we think it's from God. How do we know that it's, uh, that it's from, from God? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, God talks to the people about this very thing. And he says to them, as they're going to have scripture written, he says, you may say to yourselves, how do we know when a message has not been spoken from the Lord? What if a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord and and, and that thing doesn't come to take place? He says, well, then that prophet is not true. And the Lord has not spoken through him. See, the prophet that has spoken presumptuously should not... uh, should not do so, <laughs> right? And then it talks about how they're going to kill him if actually they, you, you, you prophesy something and it doesn't come to fruition. See, God used something called predictive prophecies. Most of the prophecies in the Bible are not predictive. They're descriptive. They're talking to the people of Israel saying, this is what's in your heart. And the God reveals what's happening in the heart of, of God's people and says it needs to change. But he adds in there actually quite a, a, a huge number of predictive prophecies, things that were going to happen in the future that would verify and validate those prophets because people can come up with great ideas, but people can't tell the future, at least not with 100% accuracy. All right? And so uh, there are in the Old Testament and New Testament, there are approximately 2,500 prophecies. That's a lot. 
okay? Now, here's something that's amazing to you. About 2,000 of those have actually come, have been fulfilled already. I mean, to the letter, I mean, crazy cool things, which means the 500 more that are still yet to be fulfilled. These have to do with the return of Jesus, and so we know what to look for. But the thing is, is that there's 500 uh, or 2,000 that we have to look for to say, could these things be fulfilled? Now, I like, um, I like numbers, and so um, as while this pulls up, let's talk about odds of fulfillment, right? Because, um, you know, there's, uh, there's, there's a lot of people who fulfill things. And you say, okay, what are the odds of, of God getting it right, these prophets getting it right? Some of the things, well, some really good mathematicians got together. I don't, they are so different than me. I can't imagine something more boring, but they find out really cool things. And so they found some stuff like this, uh, that the odds of you being one person in a group of 10 is one in 10, okay? That's, that's the first, that's easy, right? The next one, though, is your odds of being struck by lightning are going to be one in a million and um, so there's a, there's a little one up there, and that's a million. That's 60, or that's 1 times 10 to the 6th power right there. So it's 1 in a million, which is really good for us because 4 million people come to Estes every year, which lowers our level of risk. <laughs> so we like that. Now, how about the odds of winning the Powerball? You know, there's a lot of people, okay, that's, uh, that's 1 in 292 million, so it's actually 3 times... Uh, um, Better than this, but it's uh, 1 in times 10 to the 10th, right? So it actually would be uh, 3 in 10 to the 10th. So that's like, that's, that's how much. If you wanted to win the, the Powerball, which means that you are way more likely to get struck by lightning, by the way. <laughs> okay, but let's say this. Let's go to a ridiculous level. Let's say, what does statisticians say this, beyond this level, something is statistically impossible? Okay, it's become so improbable that it just can never happen. What is that number? Well, statisticians have figured that out. I don't know how they did it, but this is what they say to us. And that is the incredible number, the enormous number of 1 times 10 to the 22nd power. So that's what that would look like, 1 and that. That's if you filled the entire world with little tiny grains of sand and one of them happened to be a magic grain of sand and you took a blind person and you had them dive into it and the very first piece of sand that they picked up was that one would be better odds than 1 times 10 to the 20. That's how amazing that is. It's just never going to happen. Never. What are the odds that these 2,000 passages, these prophecies that were fulfilled. What do the statisticians tell us? This is going to be, blow your mind. It is 1 times 10 to the 2,000th power. This is what that looks like. And remember, every one of those zeros is 10 times bigger than the zero before it. And you know what? When we begin to look at this, we begin to see that God left no room for error. He wanted to show us with absolute certainty that we can trust what he had to say. In fact, that's not even big enough. The real number is a thousand times bigger than that. So if I took that screen and added a thousand of those and said this plus this plus this plus this, those are the odds that chance just happened to get it right all those times. See, God gave us reasonable evidence. I would say it takes more faith to believe that this was by chance than it would be to believe that God actually knows the future and can tell us what's going to happen. See, that's the method that he gave us to trust him. It's because of this that we know that he actually spoke. 
because people can't talk about. Now, let's talk about some of these prophecies. Because, you know, there are a lot of people who, like, how about Nostradamus and stuff? Do you know what they have? Uh, we, we, you drive down and to, to Loveland, and there's a, that person that's supposed to tell the future, which I thought was hilarious because a couple years ago they went out of business, and I thought, well, they <laughs> probably should have seen that coming. But uh, what are the odds? How, how often do those, the, the clairvoyance and all that, what are the odds... Uh, that they get it well. It's, it's around sixty percent of the time, so a little bit more than half, which is, which is pretty good. God's prophets had to be right hundred percent of the time. The scripture had to be right hundred percent of the time. And what did they have to be right on? Was it things like this, like uh, a sun will rise in the morning onto the east, and then, and then it happens, and people are like, oh, prophecy. No, let's look at some of these. These are are pretty good things. If First Kings chapter sixteen, Joshua prophesied that Jericho would be rebuilt by one man. And not only that would he be rebuilt by one man, that Jericho, the city that God, you know, that they marched around it and the trumpets and the walls fell down, it was prophesied hundreds of years before he even was rebuilt, that it would be rebuilt by one man and that his kids, his sons, would die. And not just how that they would die, but they would die during the work. And that prophecy was fulfilled 500 years after it was made to the letter. Um... And it was found as fulfillment in the life and the family of the man named Heel. How crazy is that? Or how about this? How about Jeremiah 31? And this is one that just blows your mind. You read it. Um, Jeremiah 31 it tells of the exact location and construction sequence of Jerusalem's nine suburbs after it became a nation again. And, say, it, says, and it talks about those times when those suburbs would actually get there and when they would be built and how they would be built and the order they would be built, it says that those would happen in the last days. Well, the fulfillment came after 1948. And Jerusalem became, or Israel became a nation again. And guess what? They built suburbs and they built suburbs in the exact places, in the exact order that the prophet Jeremiah said that they would be, that they would be placed. Or how about this? In Isaiah 44 and 45, the prophet Isaiah foretold a conqueror named Cyrus, gave his name, said there will be a conqueror and his name is going to be Cyrus. And he would destroy the seemingly impregnable uh, Babylon uh, uh, army or, or nation, right? And at that time, when he, this was even uttered, Babylon wasn't even a thing. And he says Babylon will get big, which but begin with, that was a, a, a prophecy, <laughs> But then he says, not only will it be good and it will be like a world power, but it's going to be destroyed. And it's going to be destroyed by the Persians. There's going to be a guy named Cyrus. This is the one that's going to destroy it. And this same man, Isaiah said, would decide to let the Jews, the exiles, go from the territory of Babylon back home. Now tell me that that would be crazy if he just guessed that. But it happened. 150 years after... Cyrus performed all of those feats. And 80 years before the Jews were, were taken to exile, uh, I think that the, this was when this prophecy was given. Jews weren't even thinking of going to exile. But God said, you're going to go into exile. This is the nation that's going to take you. This is the nation that's going to destroy them. And this is the man that's going to send you home. To the name. You see, we're not talking about just prophecies that are, that are just wildly open to interpretation. God made prophecies so specific that we could know with absolute certainty what he was talking about because we're staking our souls on this. And our God is a good God and he knows that and so he gives us reason to believe. Second Peter 1.21 
Peter says, For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but the prophets, uh, through human, uh, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And see, these prophecies didn't just come from, from nowhere. God's Holy Spirit directed, he inspired. What did that look like? I don't know. I think it's a whole lot like an artist with a brush, carrying them along, exactly perfect, to bring the message that he wanted to show. And not only that, but these prophecies, it tells us in Scripture, were protected by God. You know, before Jesus left, he tells his disciples in John 14 that, that they're going to write. That they're going to tell the world what, what happened to this, to what happened. And he tells them this, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit from the Father will send, that will send in my name will teach you all of these things and remind you of everything I've said to you. That's how we know we can trust the Gospels. And people say, well, the Gospels were written decades after what, <laughs> what Jesus did. They might have gotten things wrong. Yeah, if it was just up to humans, yes. But God sent his Holy Spirit to remind them to make sure what they wrote was actually accurate. What an amazing thing. God left nothing to chance. Do you understand? We see that this is God's word. There are reasons that we call it God's word. It is different than anything else. And so we can trust it. I think it's, it's an amazing thing. And so as we, we wrap this, this message up and, and this morning and next week, uh, we're going to talk about how do you use this because it's been misused for centuries, right, by all kinds of different people. People have misused as a very powerful thing. This is God's very own word. This is, this is power. And we talked about today that even through this, people can gain the ability to have the wisdom to come to faith <laughs> in, in Christ. Well, also people can misuse this and and use it to subjugate, uh, subjugate people to all kinds of bad things, and we can misuse it in how we read it and try to apply it in our lives, and there's all kinds of bad theologies and doctrines and fights in the world because this is a message. And so we have an obligation to read it right. And so we'll talk about next week, actually, Zach's going to be doing that whilst I'm in Ukraine. How do we read this? How do we know what God's Word is? How do we apply it to our lives? And then what I'm really excited about is when I come back from Ukraine with Easter Sunday, we're going to talk about some of these prophecies that, that God made about Jesus, who he was going to be, what he was going to do, how we know he's really the Messiah. We talked about some really crazy cool stuff, so I'm excited for that. But as we, uh, as we begin to wrap this up, what I'd like to do, how do you apply a message like this to your life? Well, I would hate to have you just wonder and ha- go home and think, well, that was a nice message, but have no change. So here's some things on your connection card. If you would take that out, and on the back side of it, there's some things that you can do this week to begin to apply and to say, okay, this is God's word. The first thing is, maybe it's to memorize 2 Timothy 3.15. Why? There was a reason God gave us his word, isn't it? That we, have, we have been taught these things from childhood, right? And, and through these holy scriptures, we have gained the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. This is a message, not just that God says, this is what I want you to do. This is a message that God says, I want you. And how do we know him? How do we gain that? Maybe this week you begin by taking this powerful word that's been, <laughs> that God has, has validated, he's, he's vindicated, he's going to our lives and he's brought it, he's transmitted it to our lives. Maybe you take this and start to transmit it to your heart this week. Say, God, what is, what is it that you're speaking to me? Maybe that's what you begin. Or maybe this, maybe you want to read 2 Timothy 2. Why? Because if you heard last week, I said, read 2 Timothy 1. If you weren't here last week, read both. 2 Timothy 1 and 2, it's really not long. It'll take you an extra like two minutes. Why? It's God's word for us. And maybe that's what you begin in saying, if, if God cared enough to have this message transmitted all throughout these centuries to do all this stuff, maybe it's worthwhile reading. Because a message that is not read is really, uh, it's not great communication, so we need to do our part. So maybe that's where you begin. Or how about this? Maybe you need to pray for faith. 
You know, I, I think that it's, it's natural and it's right to doubt. When, when Thomas doubted, Jesus didn't just chastise him. He didn't. He said, Thomas, come, touch. God said, trust me. Uh, then, uh, then Thomas came and he believed and he said, now there's going to be other people who just have to come by faith. But you know what? It's okay to have doubt. And for me, before I ever became a Christian, I had to check this way more than just the stats that I gave you today. And maybe for you, you say, God, I, I want to believe that this is your message. Or God, I, I want to know. You know, God will help you. And yet you have to do the work. You have to do the investigating too. But maybe you need to pray. Say, God, I want to trust this. How do I trust this? Maybe some people in your life have misused the Bible to hurt you in the past and used it in the wrong way. So it's not just trusting what other people say about it. Maybe saying, God, I want to have faith. I want to know what you have to say for me in my life. Maybe that's what you begin with this week as you begin talking to God and being honest with him. Or maybe this, maybe you commit to a Bible reading plan. That's a, that's a great thing to do. Um, if you would like one of those, if you check that off and you want some help, like collecting, a, like how do I get into the word? How, I, how do I even begin starting to address this? It's one of the things I love to do as a pastor. Just check that off and, and just put a star next to it or something. That way I'll know I can contact you this week and I can help you set up a plan to get into the word. And so you can begin reading it and understanding it. Maybe there's something else today that uh, has nothing to do with this. God's Holy Spirit speaking to you and there's something else. Let me know because we support you. We want to pray for you and support you in every way we can. So let me know that. If you have another commitment to make, Obviously, write those down, um, and uh, then in a few minutes, we're going to take our offering. And as we take our offering, please put these connection cards in the offering basket. It's a way that I can help serve and connect with you throughout the week. Of course, before we do that, uh, for those of you who've been here, we want to talk to God. God spoke to us in his word, and then he also said, I want to hear back from you. And that's what prayer is all about. And so as we uh, bring the message portion in, we've seen what God's word looks like. It's an opportunity for us to, to respond back to God. And so I'll start... I'll be praying, and if there's something that's on your heart that you would like to speak to God, this is your opportunity to do that, or maybe there's something just in the quiet of your own heart that you want to bring to him. This is an opportunity that we can, we can bring that to him. So as we prepare ourselves for, for offering and things, and as we bring this message close, please join me in prayer. Father God, we love you. And uh, Lord, it's not just that we, um, we say that we love you. We see in your holy word uh, that it tells us that we can love you because you first loved us that we know what love is, we even know what that definition is because we've seen it lived out uh, even by the person of Jesus. When he came as, as, as God incarnate, as, as, as you who put on flesh, he, he laid down his life for us so that we could have a new life, a life of hope and of peace and of, and of freedom and of forgiveness and of grace. You showed us what it means, Father, to choose, to choose something other than ourselves. And you chose us, and so, Father, we've invited us to choose you, and we have, and we love you. Now, Father, we're thankful. We're thankful for your word. Thank you that you didn't just say, hey, trust me, but you've given us reason to, to trust you. That we can look into your word, and we know that these aren't just things, these ideas from old guys. But, Father, that you chose just the right people at just the right times and just the right circumstances to write just the right message with perfect truth that can be applied perfectly in our lives. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us as a church to, to understand your word and its truth. Help us to apply it fully into our lives. Help us to bring you glory through it. And, Father, I thank you for one particular truth in that word that says that you don't just speak to us, but you love for us to speak with you. And so, Father, now I, I thank you that we have a time to, to, to go before you. I, I thank you that I know that you hear each of these prayers, those spoken, also those that are spoken in the quiet of our hearts. 
So we bring them to you in Christ's name.